0: Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening, and thank you for being with us on ADH. I'm Alan Jones. There's plenty to talk about, and it won't always be what you're being force fed. By the government, especially in relation to the budget, which is being brought down as I speak to you. Few Australians will be listening. They are worried about their budgets. Mm? Albanese and charmers are not worried about you, they're worried about their future political fortunes. Everything they're doing is designed to make sure they're re elected next time. Now, the greatest nonsense tonight will be the announcement of Australia's first surplus in 15 years, or a balanced budget. This is a phenomenal sleight of hand. The government are rolling in money because Australia sells the coal and gas that this same government doesn't want, and they sell it to what they would have you believe is our number one enemy, China, and Australia pockets billions of dollars, hence the chest-thumping about a surplus. But the same government won't allow you to access the same coal and gas. Instead, they're responsible for the ever-increasing power bills to households and businesses. And that's why if you ask any family out there, they'll tell you about balanced budgets. There are many double income households. I've said this before, some households with adults working two jobs. Forget what Chalmers says, all their expenses are increasing faster than their income. And as Lifeline has said repeatedly, people aren't ashamed to talk about financial difficulties anymore because everyone has them. And when you think that more than 35% of Australia's 9.8 million homes are owned with a mortgage, the 3.3 million homes under a mortgage will not be interested in charmers boasting about a fake surplus. The Ernst & Young Federal Budget Review gets it right when it says that while a surplus is a happy budget beginning, beware the ending. This is a temporary, very temporary budget bounce. As Ernst & Young has said, The Treasurer has promised to bank, quote, most of the revenue windfall. Well, that's crap. The government should be banking all of it and making some tough decisions. Chalmers and Albanese won't do that. Instead, the centrepiece of this budget is almost $15 billion of spending, allegedly addressed to the cost of living crisis that they've created. Who has created the cost of living crisis? Government. There is not a single critical issue facing this country that hasn't been created by government. Why have we had 11 increases in interest rates? Allegedly to address spending to slow down the economy. Well, who are the big spenders? Well, Morrison was up there with Frydenberg, Step Up Jim Sharmas and his state government mates, Andrews in Victoria, Perrottet and Keane in New South Wales, spending tonight fourteen point six thousand million million. I mentioned over and over again that Perrottet and Keene in New South Wales increased government spending in one year by 26.5%. And now they're spending tonight to address problems that the government itself has created. Multi-billion dollar checks to consumers to offset the higher costs created by the government's dangerous and absurd energy policy. And I've talked endlessly about that, the economic suicide note. Just imagine a government mad enough to believe that our energy needs could be met by the weather, wind and solar. I mean, lunatics is not an inappropriate word. Just remember who created the crisis in our energy bills. This very government that is now spending your money to cover up their energy mess. Millions give it to small business to become more energy efficient. Well, if small business had coal-fired power, and we ignore the stupidity about climate change, they would already be efficient. They have been in the past. They have been for years. That's how the country grew its wealth. All of this, a forlorn response to a hoax, which was once global warming, but we just had snow two and a half hours from Sydney at the weekend, so it's now called climate change. I've warned endlessly that there would be disturbing consequences from the policies of this government, especially on energy, And that will mean we will not get out of deficit now or tomorrow or next year. You see, there are two deficits, the budget deficit. And of course, Chalmers says this year we are in surplus. Then there's the overall government debt, net debt headed towards six hundred billion dollars, six hundred thousand million. But instead of arresting the debt. The Treasurer has confirmed there'll be 5.5 million households and 1 million small businesses eligible for several hundred dollars in energy bill relief, when it's the government that has created the escalation in energy prices. But then they tell us that people are under the pump, says Chalmers. Well, who has put households and businesses under the pump? Chalmers is boasting his $14.6 billion cost of living package is one of the biggest in the nation's history when we're in debt and the cost of living crisis and inflation have been created by spending, government spending, not your spending. You've got bugger all to spend. But Chalmers goes on spending. And while Chalmers is boasting about his fake surplus, Australian companies are hitting the wall in transport, construction and hospitality sectors, to name a few. The tax office says pay up or get wound up. So there were 484 administrations and liquidations across the country in February alone, 484 down the drain, 45% up from the same time a year ago and 134% more than in January this year. We've got a housing crisis, builders are going broke, the tax officers asked after people who can't pay and job losses follow. In the first half of this financial year, insolvencies rose by 62% compared with the previous corresponding period last year. Thousands of them in New South Wales and Victoria, hundreds of them in Queensland, WA and South Australia. Insolvent, can't pay the bills, gone, out the door, jobs with them. And this bloke tonight's talking about a surplus, got hairs on his chest, first surplus in any number of years. And in spite of the rhetoric tonight, welfare spending is rising, productivity growth is almost non-existent and we've got no buffers for the next crisis. There is more bulldust than budget. So, tell your kids the truth. When your children leave school and hopefully get a job, they'll be carrying this government's debt on their backs. They should be resentful that a Labor government has chosen not to cut back public spending. 80 years ago, Menzies, in his Forgotten People broadcast, spoke about the dispiriting world where government penalizes the thrifty, discourages independence, and looks unfavourably on income from savings. Well, here we are. Chalmers wants to tax these very qualities that identified the forgotten people 80 years ago. Thrift, independence and saving. There are two weaknesses that characterise government, not just this one. A lack of interest in reducing expenditure because government wants to buy votes, and a lack of guts in facing up to reality. Whatever benefits are available to us, come from our resource and energy exports. They are forecast to set a record of $464 billion this year because of surging commodity prices. And you know what Albanese and Bowen want to do about our resources? Leave them in the ground. The Resource Minister, Madeline King, is closer to the mark than Bowen ever would be, and she talks about the indispensable role that Australia plays as a stable and reliable supplier of energy to the world, Except that her very government denies us access to those same energy resources so that we can have cheap power. No one in this government, and certainly no one in the last, has the courage to tell younger workers that they're being left to shoulder rapidly growing tax debts, repaying public debt, and dealing with the cost of unaffordable climate change policies. Then there's the increase in the job seeker payment, Oh, for God's sake. Look, for some that might have validity. But how do you explain that there are 508,500 Australians unemployed? 508,500 Australians unemployed. But the job vacancies, as at February this year, totaled 438,500. So we pay the unemployed more while the employer whistles for staff. Nothing changes with Labor. It's tax and spend or as the first chairman of the Productivity Commission, Gary Banks, said back in March, we are going backwards on energy, industrial relations, taxation and government spending, and that Australia is losing its ability to implement policies to properly, quote, cope with change to the competitive and support economic growth. None of this will change. While on the one hand, we're talking massive immigration, and on the other, the religious pursuit of net zero carbon dioxide emissions. Remember, Bowen has admitted that to get to 43% emissions reduction by 2030, I mean, I say this over and over again, but cop this. To get there, we'll need 22,500 watt solar panels every day for eight years, 22,000. We'll need 47 megawatt turbines every month for eight years and we'll need 10,000 kilometers of additional transmission lines. And if that ever happened, You're also going to pay $7 billion, $7,000 million on top of that to connect the already failed Snowy Hydro project to the grid. I'm sorry, we're being run by ideological zealots and fools. Ideology first, and the national interest doesn't even run a place. Nothing in this budget will go anywhere near strengthening our economy or delivering what is needed to allow economic sanity to prevail. I say again the National Economic Suicide Note is being written. The victims, And not the overpaid politicians, the authors of the suicide note. The victims are the luckless and ignored residents of Struggle Street. Well, look, there are so many things happening around us that it is difficult to comprehend their significance in a way that very busy people understand. You've got the coronation, you've got the voice, and you've got the abuse of prosecutorial discretion in relation to David Trump. And of course, the seemingly never-ending damaging nonsense about climate change evidenced in what I've already said to you about the budget tonight. Well, time to bring in the man for all issues. Professor David Flint. I have invaded his space a little. He is one of the victims of the flu that's doing the rounds. I've told David, you must take your olive leaf extract. (laughs) I take mine. So, Professor Flint, thank you for your time. Goodness me. I'm sorry to invade your space. But I've already made the observation, David, that the Prime Minister has said that he has sworn, this is in London, he said he'd sworn allegiance to the Crown. Now, he certainly did so in Britain but not when he was sworn in as Prime Minister. Now, Section 42, as you know of the Constitution, is very specific about the oath, and indeed it argues that, quote, every senator and every member of the House of Representatives shall, before taking his seat, make and and subscribe before the Governor-General, or some person authorised by him, an oath of affirmation or allegiance set forth in the schedule of this Constitution. Now, as Professor Flint knows, but I make this point to our viewers, the oath and affirmation are spelled out, which require, and I quote, every senator and every member to quote, be faithful and bear true allegiance to and then the sovereign's name is included. Now, when Anthony Albanese became prime minister, the sovereign was Queen Elizabeth. So according to the Constitution, Section 42, he is to swear true allegiance to the sovereign, to the queen, and to the sovereigns, heirs and successors. So David, Mr Albanese hasn't done that. Is he constitutionally entitled to the prime ministership?
1: Well, he swore uh, the appropriate oath when he took his seat as a member of the House of Representatives. The constitution doesn't make any requirement as to when you're appointed a minister. It used to be the executive practice that was required at the executive level that ministers also swear an oath of allegiance. Paul Keating got rid of that. It's part of the example of creeping republicanism. But
0: can I stop you there? uh, Can I stop you there, David? I'm glad you made that point. Paul Keating did get rid of this in 1993, I think in relation to Michael Lavash, but section 28 of the constitution says, the constitution can only be altered by the people. So how could Paul Keating in April, 1993, determine that ministers no longer had to promise to serve the Queen, but rather the Commonwealth of Australia?
1: Well, unfortunately, the Constitution doesn't make a requirement as to what oath a minister should swear, and that's a matter of uh, executive law, of regulation, and uh, change the appropriate regulations. So what he did is legal, but uh, the Prime Minister is still bound by his oath of allegiance to the king and if you can't trust people in relation to their oath of allegiance to the king how could you trust them for example when they go into court and swear to tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth but
0: David, I don't quite understand the point that you've just made there, and, and I, I'm sorry to be repetitive here, but the Constitution says in Section 42, every senator and every member of the House of Representatives shall, before taking his seat, make, make and subscribe before the Governor-General or some person authorised by him an oath of affirmation. And then that oath is, am I incorrect in saying that that oath is spelt out, that every senator every member must be faithful and pledge allegiance to whatever the sovereign might be? Are you saying that? That isn't spelt out in the Constitution?
1: Oh, it is spelt out in the Constitution, but it only applies to taking your seat as a member of the House or as a senator. It doesn't apply to accepting appointment as a minister of the Crown.
0: Very good point. I see. I see. Thank you for that. Uh, You're right. It does say every Uh, senator and every member. So what you're saying is the prime minister and the various ministers, the Deputy Prime Minister and others who didn't so swear um, are actually in, that is their entitlement. I note that Kevin Rudd added in 2007, the reference to her people and her lands. When Albanese was asked in an interview prior to the coronation, whether he was going to swear the oath of allegiance to King Charles, he said, I do that every term. So in a sense, he was correct.
1: Yes, that that is correct. He does swear that every time. He's a a serial uh, oath swearer to the king or the queen. Right. And uh, I find it difficult to understand how people can do this. Lydia Thorpe, for example, had to swear it, although she tried to make all sorts of reservations, which the president of the Senate disallowed.
0: So your point is that as a senator or a member, they do have to swear allegiance to the sovereign but as there's no such rules in relation, and you're dead right, I was reading the constitution today and you're absolutely right. I omitted that point. There is no such provision for a prime minister or a minister. Um, Exactly. The Governor-General, where does the Governor-General fit in protecting this constitution?
1: Well, the Governor-General's duty is to maintain the constitution as there in section 61.
0: Mm.
1: If you look at section 61, uh, it states that the executive powers of the Commonwealth that are vested in the crown or the queen or king yes. and exercisable by the Governor-General and extend to the maintenance of this constitution and the yes. laws of the Commonwealth. So, so there it, is an obligation
0: yes, on so the right. uh,
1: Governor-General. But to, if
0: you were the Governor-General Governor uh, representing uh, the Sovereign, wouldn't you think it odd that the senators and members must swear allegiance to the Sovereign But suddenly the Prime Minister of the day back in 1993 says, no, 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 don't worry about that. We don't, you don't have to do that. Uh, Would not the Governor-General say it surely is appropriate for the higher beings within the government, namely the Prime Minister and the ministers, should so swear?
1: I think it would be highly appropriate for a Governor-General to advise the Prime Minister not to go to that place. Yes. But if the Prime Minister were to insist it would be legally possible. Where I would also think that the Governor-General should give advice, private advice, which would not be binding as, for example, in creating the the portfolio, at least the portfolio name, that one of the secretaries, parliamentary secretaries, should be known as the Assistant Minister for the Republic. I think that is uh, appropriate.
0: Absolutely. What do you make of those on the ABC who said prior to the coronation that it was nothing more than, quote, an elaborate spectacle for a symbol that represents an institution that perpetrated colonisation at the expense of First Nations people and people of colour? Who is standing up against this invasion nonsense and welcome to country as if this country is at ours and this has been fed to the kids in our classroom?
1: This is the fabrication of uh, Aboriginal history, of which Keith Winshuttle has written greatly. Keith Win- Winchuttle is a real historian. He goes back to original documents, and he, he can demonstrate, for example, that there was no frontier war. There were a few incidents, but nothing you could ever call a frontier war, although I see that the War Museum is thinking of having some it sort is. of work on this in relation to... Uh, uh, so-called frontier wars, which don't exist. There's an enormous fabrication of Aboriginal history. It is an inappropriate for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, the, the people's broadcast, as it were, funded by the people and the taxpayers for taking such a, a really narrow line and presenting its own idea of politics, particularly at the time of the coronation.
0: But Keith Winshall, you mentioned Keith Winshuttle. Now, uh, and I've read Keith Winshuttle widely, and he, you're right, a very legitimate historian who's basing his interpretation of history on documents that he has researched. Now, he also made the point once in an interview with me that this welcome to country is an invention.
1: Indeed, absolutely. Well, it's like the flag. The flag is relatively new. When I was a young man, for example, and wanted to help the Aboriginal people, I couldn't listen to all those welcoming ceremonies and I couldn't wave a flag which didn't exist. So what did I do as a young law student? I went along and volunteered to work for a newly created, non commonwealth funded, Aboriginal legal service, which was to help Aboriginal people. And that's, I think, how one helps the Aboriginal people, as Tony Abbott used to do every year. As yeah. a minister, he would go up yeah. and work with the mm. Aboriginal people.
0: That's, that's what you right. need. Yeah. The, the, I mean, that's right. Me. He has slept he slept with them. And Prime Minister Albanese went to Alice Springs during the day and flew back to go to the Australian Open Tennis Championships. I mean, you make a very valid point, which is not taught in our schools any longer, but When Governor Philip arrived with the First Fleet, he didn't come alone. As you said, he brought with him institutions, which, despite, as you've written, all the criticism that's now levelled at them, enabled Australia to become one of the world's oldest continuing democracies. So Philip brought with him the rule of law, the English language, leadership beyond politics through the Crown, the Judeo-Christian values, and then, of course, representative democracy, then federation. Why isn't this being taught in our schools, why isn't it compulsorily taught in our schools? Because before Philip arrived, we were a nation of hunters and gatherers and fishers.
1: Well, this is the appalling thing about education the decline in teaching numeracy, literacy, and history. And uh, I, I can remember as a boy in ordinary primary school where every boy in the class was literate and numerate. And Correct. How did I know that? The teacher made them stand up and read. He made them do calculations on the blackboard and he always had a cane to deal with us if we didn't do what he, what was the right thing to do. We knew our history. We were taught the real history of Australia, not a fabricated history, mm. which is the custom today. And so, the terrible thing, Alan, is that the Liberal Party, the coalition has been in power in this state. For many years, they allowed the same things to happen.
0: Yes, I mean, how do we overcome accepting the reality that we are in a mess and the left everywhere are in charge. How do we overcome this left wing talk that Indigenous Australians don't have a voice? We've now got sporting bodies, the Olympic Committee, corporations, banks advocating a yes vote, when in fact, all that Philip brought to the colony, according to the march of the left, must be now handed back. I mean, Lydia Thorpe, I have to say, is my new heroine, because she says, we don't want a voice. We don't want a treaty. We want sovereignty, rent, a proportion of GDP. She's the only one telling the truth.
1: Well, the latest form of corruption after sometimes the mainstream media is now big sport. Big sport is something completely new where vast corporations, very highly paid people, run sport. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, they're getting enormous incomes because of television advertising. And they're using sport for political purposes. And we've seen that in relation Mm -hmm. to... Uh, a referendum which has nothing to do with Big Sport. Big Sport doesn't vote. So why should they be taking a position in relation to a referendum on changing the constitution?
0: Yeah, I mean, you might be paying the mortgage out there listening to us tonight, but according to the advocates of The Voice, you don't own your land. Uh, What was the significance to us simply of the coronation? You've written about the values that the British brought to this colony, this country which I think are being progressively eroded. But what was the value of the Constitution, the discipline, the panoply, the tradition?
1: It's the eighth since the settlement. It, it stays as it is and it emphasises the original Judeo-Christian values, not the Judeo-Christian religion, but the values which base our civic society. And it recalls all of the pillars that Philip brought with him because of the oath, the oath that the sovereign swears which is to observe and to follow and to apply the laws and customs of each of the realms so that we it 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 reflects the fact that the crown has changed the crown is now important not so much for the power it wields but the power it denies others That's it right. is a constitutional check and balance and
0: that is what is so important mm. in the westminster system and, you, and so we I... need at that point. Sorry, and you write, Professor Flint's right, that we should we should not embrace constitutional change unless there's credible evidence that the change proposed is desirable, irresistible, and inevitable. And you say we must do two things to save the nation, cling to what we have and work to improve the governance of the nation. Your words, a nation which delinquent politicians so determined, so seem so determined to set on the path of decline. Just amplify that point, delinquent politicians.
1: Well, I, I think the problem in this country is that there is no significant problem in this country. If it weren't created by the politicians, it has been made significantly worse by them. And I often ask people to think about that and think if they can think of any problem which was not created by the political class or made significantly worse. And people go away and they say, I can't think of anything which doesn't fall into that category. We have a political class which is failing, and they are dragging this country down. And we know from research everywhere that the thing that makes a country great are sound institutions. It's not great mineral wealth, It's sound institutions. And that's why a country like Venezuela is in the mess that it is. It's sitting on a sea of oil, more oil than any other country. Argentina, which was a rich country, like Australia at the time, of federation, which has declined and turned to a third world country. We, too, are going down that path. It is the politicians who are doing that. And disaster is not far away, as you rightly say. The politicians have signed a national suicide note in terms of energy. Mm, mm. They've refused to do what you've called, you've been a a major caller for the development of this country by moving around water. We have all the water we want in this country, it just falls in the wrong place. Mm. If it were moved around and we built dams and so we could have development, we wouldn't wouldn't have to uh, live floor above floor in Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane, we wouldn't have to live in the crowds that we live here. The whole country could be developed, Absolutely. like the United States. Absolutely. But without without water, we cannot have that development.
0: How damaging, how damaging would it be, and this is what this is about, The Voice, if we were to allow special privileges to one group of Australians based on race?
1: It would be the very worst thing that could happen. Menzies, Sir Robert Menzies himself, council strongly against this in 1967 when he produced the first draft of the 1967 referendum. He said that we mustn't do what Labour wanted him to do, that is hand over federal power in relation to the indigenous people. He said that would only lead to a massive bureaucracy. Mm. He said the only solution, the only solution in relation to the original people was to treat them as citizens of Australia with the same rights Mm. and responsibilities as everybody yeah. else. Equal citizens yes. no different from everybody else. But, but, and that's the way we should all be but treated. David, we've just, changed
0: the, we've just changed the national anthem. Australia does all rejoice because we are one and free. We are one and free. We did that only last year and now we've got this voice. And Menzies was right, wasn't he? And you've made this point. More politicians, that means more flash officers, high salaries, high allowances, overseas travel, gold-plated superannuation, media advisors, well-paid staff, no sensible Australian could possibly embrace this. And then, David, I've made this point because, as with every other peak Aboriginal body, and I've outlined previously, there are currently, and I say this again, I have to say, the editorial I did the other night on this program has gone berserk on Twitter. Apparently, there's been hundreds of thousands of views. And I made the point there are already 3,000 352 registered Aboriginal corporations. The Prime Minister already has an Indigenous Advisory Council. There are already more than 30 land councils occupying 40% of the continent. There's a so-called Council of Peaks representing 70 Aboriginal organisations. There are 11 Aboriginal MPs in the federal parliament, which is 4.8% of the parliament, when the Aboriginal population is 3.8%. David, why can none of these, even still, none of these, are able to close the gap?
1: Exactly because because the leaders are not interested because they will not do what is necessary. And Menzies was doing what was necessary. Menzies, incidentally, thought argued that it was likely or it would be good to get rid of the race power. Fifty one twenty six is in the constitution. It's the race power. Menzies thought it was attractive to get rid of it, and he wanted inquiries into. It be conducted to get rid of it rather than increasing it, as we're seeing now. And uh, in relation to this race power, it's even imprecise. We do not know who is an Aboriginal person or not. It's a ticker box. If you tick the box, whenever you deal with the government now, whether you're checking on dentistry or medical health or all sorts of things, there's a box there which asks you whether you are an Aboriginal person. And you decide whether you are. That's why there's been this significant increase in the number of Aboriginal people because the government is making it attractive mm. to declare yourself as an Aborigine. This will make it even more attractive because you will have this, this um, third uh, chamber, this fourth arm of government, which will give you a second voice in Australia in addition to the voice that ordinary Australians have. Mm. It will be a terrible thing. The, yeah. the, the founders said... The fact said very clearly, the reason they put the safeguards in the Constitution, which the people approved, that is, the Swiss referendum, not many constitutions had this at the time, the Swiss referendum, which required passing not only nationally, but passing in a majority of states, the reason, they said, was not to stop change, but to make, to stop change made, uh, made... uh, in haste or by in haste or by stealth, they signal those two areas. Mm-hmm. This is what the Albanese government is doing. They're trying to rush this through in haste That's right and by stealth, That's it. by well, not telling us everything that well, they're doing. This is precisely
0: opposed. We can go on all night. You and I won't allow the haste or the stealth to prevail and we'll keep prosecuting the case. And we did it with the Republic, with Professor Flint. And if you don't understand yes. any of this stuff and you'll be excused not for understanding it, you vote no. I will be unapologetically voting no for some of the reasons we've outlined tonight. And we need leaders out there who will explain who will, and we've got them, uh, people like that wonderful woman Jacinta Price, an Indigenous Australian, but we'll continue to explain what are the negative aspects of this whole proposal and why they don't want us to give information and why, as David said, they want to proceed with haste and stealth. And because they want to do all that sort of stuff and because it's a race-based change to the Constitution, I am saying to Australians, we must vote no. Professor Flint, thank you for your time. Get well. Don't forget those tablets, <laughs> hey? Make sure you take your tablets and we'll talk to you next time. Certainly. There he is, David. Thank Fitt. you. It is an indelible stain on the prime ministership of Scott Morrison when in the parliament, more than a year ago, the prime minister gestured to the gallery where Brittany Higgins was sitting and said, I'm sorry, we are sorry, I'm sorry to Miss Higgins for the terrible things that took place here, unquote. Anthony Albanese wasn't going to be left behind He reportedly lifted the lid on the culture of Parliament. He said, quote, you have torn through a silence that has acted as a life support system for the most odious of status quos, unquote. Let me begin by saying the obvious. No one should feel unsafe or disrespected in any workplace and no one should be abused. But we've never had the details, though it's reported that Miss Higgins received $3 million of taxpayers' money following a mediation that lasted a day. We don't know if it was $3 million. As taxpayers, we're not told. And we should be. The opposition has never asked. Well, now in Canberra, we have public hearings. It's called the Sofronoff Inquiry into how the ACT criminal justice system worked in the case of the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins. Into the spotlight yesterday was drawn what were called the internal review documents known as the Moller Reports. The ACT DPP Shane Drumgold is the person who sought this inquiry. He may well get more than he bargained for. You see, these documents, known as the Moller Reports, after Detective Superintendent Scott Moller, the ACT Police Manager of Criminal Investigations, the DPP Drumgold fought tooth and nail to prevent these reports from being disclosed to the defence. So the central question of this software-off inquiry asks, Did the DPP disclose? All the material he was duty bound to disclose to the Lehman defense case. And if not, was there a fair trial? Did all the information and evidence justify prosecution? The full Moller reports have only now been released. And the media headline using the word bombshell is a virtual understatement. What has now been made public is the Detective Superintendent Moller and those working with him included in their reports the discovery of extraordinary discrepancies in relation to Miss Higgins' evidence. Too many to outline here, but they include Ms Higgins saying that Bruce Learman bought her drinks all night, but the closed circuit television footage didn't reflect this, and Learman's financial records show that he spent $16 at one venue and $40 at another. Higgins said she was 10 out of 10 drunk But Parliament House closed-circuit television footage showed her interacting with security staff, smiling and laughing with no signs of being unwell. Higgins said she couldn't walk, but closed-circuit TV footage showed her walking in heels without any issue. Higgins said she couldn't write her name and that Learman signed her in, but a security guard described her as willingly signing her own name. On being shown the sign-in sheet, Higgins said, that's not my handwriting. Two weeks after the alleged rape, Higgins told police she couldn't recall the name of the nightclub she went to with Learman. But days earlier, she'd told a work colleague it was 88 MPH. She told the media program The Project that she had no romantic actions with Learman at 88 MPH, but her friend Lauren Gain said that the two had hands on each other's legs and were pashing, and she was also observed to be taking selfies of Learman and herself on her phone. She informed police she had photos on her phone of the evening that she'd keep for police but never provided them. Higgins said that during the alleged incident, she was crying, but the security guard told police she looked at Higgins during the welfare check and observed a full face of makeup and no signs of crying or distress. Higgins told police she had chocolates and vomited in the bathroom. The cleaner stated he didn't have to do anything more than a light clean. Saw no stains on the couch and didn't observe anything to suggest the bathroom had been used. The Moller report stated the police discovered texts on Higgins's phone that said, I'm clearing out my phone ahead of the police. And FUCK it, if they want the federal police, if they want to play a hard ball, I'll just cry on the project again because of this sort of treatment, unquote. All this is but part of what the Moller reports identified as discrepancies in the statements by Brittany Higgins. Three questions at least need to be asked. Firstly, was all relevant material, like the Moller reports made available to the defence? And in how many other cases is material relevant to the court and the defence withheld in criminal cases? And what does this say of the criminal justice system? And on what is now being revealed, how strong was the police case, which apparently argued there was no justification for a prosecution? Secondly, on what information was the Prime Minister relying when he apologised to Ms Higgins in the Parliament, saying, I'm sorry to Ms Higgins for the terrible things that took place? And thirdly, what available information led to Ms Higgins being the recipient of millions of dollars of taxpayers' money? This Sofronoff inquiry must get to the bottom of all of this. The average bloke in Struggle Street would say simply, it is a bloody disgrace. Let's go to Peggy Grandy in America, where surely an emerging question is a simple question. Can Joe Biden escape the scrutiny that's currently being applied to his family? Let's go to Peggy on this and other matters. But before I do, I have to congratulate Peggy. She's written the most wonderful piece and Peggy being an American, of course, about the coronation. And I'll just say to you, I will repost that piece on my Facebook page. I think you'd really enjoy reading it. But let's go to Peggy just on that. From an American perspective, Peggy, what did you make of it all?
2: Well, thank you, as always, Alan, for having me on. And I thought, of course, the pomp and the pageantry of it was just magnificent. And I think that all the hesitation there was about... Prince Charles, when he was Prince of Wales, and all the politicization of his comments really has gone away in a lot of ways. From the moment his mother, the Queen, passed away, we've seen him take on a more royal posture, shall we say, less political. And I think the people are responding well to that. There was an incredible turnout even amidst the rain. And there was moments where you almost thought you saw a little smile or a twinkle in yeah. his eyes, um, showing his appreciation to the British people yeah. I, and people I, I from I thought, all over the world. I,
0: which I thought the point, him. I thought one very, really important point you made was when you said uh, "the, the fir- having the first divorced king, also married to a divorcee, as the head of the church seems highly incongruent, yet followers of Christ accept that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And without Jesus are unworthy of his love and salvation. The humanity of the king's imperfection mirrors ours. And you said that was a uniting force. I think that was a very powerful point to make.
2: Yeah. And even, you know, you look at the scandals going on in his family with Prince Andrew and, you know, the rift between him and Harry and Meghan. These are things that the common person can relate to. Nobody's family is perfect. The family dynamics become very complicated. And so I think in a way that humanized him and the service, I thought, was deeply religious. His mother was known for being a great woman of faith. And I think that regardless of where Charles has been in his life, Previously, King Charles III is really returning to those deep roots of faith and showed that by his coronation ceremony and the the elements of it that he chose.
0: Absolutely, beautifully. I'll, I'll repost, Peggy has written beautifully about this. I'll repost Peggy's piece on my Facebook page. Now, Peggy, Hunter, Barr, this is woeful, this stuff. Hunter Biden's hard drive now shows that Hunter Biden and his firm, according to documents from Senate Republicans, took about $11 million from 2013 to 2018 via his roles as an attorney and a board member with a Ukrainian firm which has been accused of bribery and his work with a Chinese businessman now accused of fraud. Now, this is from NBC News analysis of a copy of Biden's hard drive and iCloud documents released by Republicans on two Senate committees. Peggy, are Americans taking this stuff seriously?
2: Well, I think they finally are. And the heat is certainly turning up on Joe Biden. And the House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer is actually going to be holding a press conference on Wednesday and has promised to show a lot of documentation. There's a whistleblower that has come out from inside government who said, who has accused that government has actually stonewalled this investigation and buried yeah. the story on it. And so James Comer has said he has documentation of that. We'll see that if he's able to produce that. But I think the American people rightfully are concerned and are finally paying attention to this.
0: I mean, it raises questions, doesn't it, about national security to say nothing of business ethics with the son of the president, or even if he was then vice president, in lockstep with Chinese partners. Now, for our viewers, NBC News reported that an ex-business partner, cop this, had warned Hunter Biden he should amend his tax returns to disclose $400,000 in income from this Ukrainian firm Burisma, which I would have thought is very odd. Peggy, do we know whether any of this income went to his father or was the consequence of his father then being vice president?
2: Well, what they're uncovering in this investigation is that there are many LLCs um, or corporations. So there's kind of this shell game. The money goes into one, it's passed to another. We originally knew that there were a couple of Biden family members that were receiving payments indirectly from China and Russia and others. But now it appears that there's there's up to a dozen family members. And so it's really That's, concerning yeah. because we're looking at influence yeah. peddling at best. We're seeing a pay for pace, pay for play scheme. Was there money exchanged for policy? Yeah. Joe Biden actually admitted as much when he talked about some of the things that happened in Ukraine. And so M- yeah. we are going to get to the bottom of this. Yeah. And none of this looks good I for mean, Joe Biden and his family.
0: I mean, it is staggering stuff. There's expenditure compiled on Hunter Biden's, Biden's hard drive, which showed that he spent two hundred thousand dollars per month per month from October 2017 to February 2018 on luxury hotel rooms. This is all on the hard drive. Porsche, Porsche uh, car payments, dental work and cash withdrawals. He admitted to burning through cash to pay for drugs and partying, he said, with strangers who stole money from him. And he struggled to pay multiple mortgages or keep up with alimony and child support payments to his ex-wife, Peggy. How dysfunctional can you get I mean, it's, it's beyond belief, all this stuff, the Biden family.
2: Well, Hunter Biden, of course, is a sad state. And you know some families have members of their family like that. But it goes far beyond that. It's dangerous if Joe Biden is compromised. And one of the bombshells that came out this week, Alan, was if you remember back to just prior to the 2020 election, there was a letter that was signed by 51 intelligence officials that was released saying that the Hunter Biden laptop was, in essence, Russian disinformation or had all the markings of it. We now know not only was that not true, but was done specifically signed for political purposes yeah. for Joe Biden to use as talking points on the debate stage. And we heard him use that as an argument against Trump's accusation. And so this is not true. And we have to imagine that it did have an influence and an impact on the 2020 election.
0: Yeah. yeah. I mean, and then these documents reveal, I mean, these figures are eye watering $5.8 million. More than half his total earnings from 2013 to 2018, 5.8 million from two deals with Chinese business interests. Now, if that wouldn't raise concerns, I don't know what would. Only a week ago, Hunter Biden's lawyers painted Hunter Biden now as financially strapped. It was his first appearance in an Arkansas court. He is seeking to get his child support payments to his former mistress and their four-year-old reduced. Now, Peggy, What are the American public saying about this, or does the cover-up continue?
2: Well, some of the cover-up does continue, but it could, you know, it's laughable to think that Hunter Biden is just a struggling artist. We know that that's not true. You know, this is actually, it's cruelty on behalf of the Biden family. Not only are they not admitting to the fact that this little girl is part of their family, but They're depriving her of Secret Service protection, which she would be entitled to as the granddaughter of the president of the United States. And so this really is cruel and it has great ramifications far beyond just Hunter Biden wanting to pay less in child support.
0: Yes, I mean, uh, the court heard this is unbelievable. The court heard that this Hunter Biden now has no salary, that his Porsche vehicle has been repossessed. But cop this, the court was told he was forced to sleep on a cot in his father's room during the presidential trip to Dublin. Peggy, is this credible?
2: Of course not. That's laughable. He maybe shared a room with his father, but his father wasn't in some Motel 6 or the equivalent in Ireland. He was, I'm sure, in a palatial presidential suite and his son decided to share the room with him, maybe to you know, monitor his ice cream con- consumption in the middle of the night or something. <laughs> but this is laughable. Nobody believes this. And he has opened up himself now to this scrutiny, and I think he's going to regret it.
0: Now, Biden's lawyer says Hunter Biden was paying this woman, Roberts, Alexis Roberts, $20,000 a month in child support under an agreement reached in 2020, and that Hunter Biden had already paid at least $750,000. And Biden's lawyers objected to attempts by this Alexis Roberts to frame Hunter Biden as privileged and wealthy. That is, when the revelation came that he was sleeping on a cot in the president's room in Dublin and his Porsche had been repossessed and his only income is a percentage of his art sales from a New York gallery. Peggy, you couldn't make this up on a drunken night.
2: (laughs) You couldn't. And there's not one person who is feeling sorry for Hunter Biden right now. What they are feeling sorry for is this woman who's a single mother in Arkansas who is trying to raise this child in the shadow of this family who refuses to acknowledge her, even though she has been proven to be Hunter Biden's daughter.
0: Yeah, I mean, supposed to be this lawyer Hollywood lawyer who's a friend of his and is funding the case before the courts and and he cares about his client. The child's mother is arguing against Biden's application to reduce child support that Biden, and this is a fair point, had a team, her words, of high priced attorneys and that Biden had retained, quote, some of the most expensive attorneys on planet Earth and quote, if Mr. Biden can afford a Washington, D.C., Hollywood and Chicago big law firms and the best domestic relations attorney on the Texas side of the border, he surely must have income for child support. Now, coming to your point, Biden initially denied the baby was his. Then there was a court ordered paternity test showed he was the father. But the Biden family doesn't publicly acknowledge the child. Peggy, even last week, as we showed on the program, President Biden claimed he had six grandchildren, omitting the four-year-old girl from the list. Peggy, it makes you dizzy thinking of the proximity of all of this to the President of the United States.
2: Well, and it's sad because here's a man who claims his Catholic faith and says that he's very devout. And, you know, at Christmas time, they hung a stocking for the dog and the cat, but not their granddaughter that's proven to be theirs. And so whether they're ashamed of Hunter's activities, you know, that's probably the least of the things they should be ashamed of. But I have to say, good for this woman because this is truly David versus Goliath. And she is taking on not only Hunter Biden, but the Biden family machine. And so she's a brave woman to do so. I wish her the very best and if Hunter had just made these payments and kept his mouth shut, we wouldn't be talking about any of this. Th- that's but right. He you started
0: see, this. Yeah, and I mean, hopefully the she gets to finish. Sorry, it. sorry to interrupt you, Peggy. Sorry, will you finish? I'm just going to say, Republican Commerce Committee have subpoenaed <laughs> all the records. All the records now, that's because the Republicans now have the House numbers right. and they have said, quote, it shows a pattern that the Biden family, not just Hunter Biden, was receiving money directly from China. And the question is, what were they doing in return for that money? Peggy DeSantis, right. is DeSantis going to be a candidate in the Republican primaries? Because he doesn't seem to be able to lay a glove on Donald Trump in the race to win the Republican combination, uh, nomination. We keep being told that he's going to announce his candidature. Is he when?
2: Well, I don't know. You know, a lot of people thought these delays were a sign of maybe he was reconsidering. Other things that maybe it was just a trial balloon. But I'll tell you what will make him reconsider is there was an interesting poll that came out today showing that both Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis were pulling ahead of Joe Biden and both. Either one could beat him in a head to head matchup. And so I think if Ron DeSantis has been on the fence before and if the Republicans have been thinking that Donald Trump is the only way to beat Joe Biden, this poll certainly gives Ron DeSantis a little nudge, maybe, to jump in. So we'll see what he decides to do. But either way, he's been a terrific governor of Florida. He's a great leader for the Republican Party in many ways. And he has a bright future ahead of him, regardless of whether it's running for president now or another time.
0: Peggy, if just coming back to Biden, if Kennedy is running, we talked about this last week as a Democrat, could he unseat Biden for the Democratic nomination?
2: Well, it will be interesting to see how all of this House Oversight Committee exposure what that does to Joe Biden. Joe Biden continues to deny everything, but if we start seeing the receipts, so to speak, um, it's going to be really hard to backpedal from some of this. I think Joe Biden's in it; he's the incumbent, and so he certainly would have the advantage. But I think it'll 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 be interesting to see how this plays out and how Kennedy plays this running against him.
0: Yeah, and this presupposes, of course, that the Biden mental decline doesn't continue. I mean, at the rate we're going, uh, this man may not be able to put a sentence together.
2: Well, that hasn't been a criteria for him in the past. We know that his mental decline will continue and that the media will continue to cover for him. We will see for how long. And if they decide as a media and as a Democrat party, they're going to go another way. But for now, Joe Biden is going to be their candidate.
0: Okay, good to talk to you, Peggy, as always. Your insights are terrific. Congratulations on that piece, by the way, on the coronation coming from an American. It's very significant. And as I said, I'll be posting Peggy's piece on my Facebook page today. That's Peggy Grandy in America. Before we go, on budget night, it's worth having a crack at digesting this. The Republican Party in America has just announced that 50 cents out of every dollar the United States pays back on its debt over the next 10 years will go to interest repayments. That means that half the taxes paid by the average American taxpayer no longer go towards building bridges, dams or power stations. Their tax will go to the interest on the debt that American politicians have racked up. Meanwhile, the U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that the U.S. may run out of cash by the 1st of June if Congress fails to raise or suspend the debt ceiling. And a new report by the Hoover Institute has found that well over 2,000 American banks, 2,000, are currently sitting on assets worse worth less than their liabilities. As Professor Amit Saru, a banking expert at Stanford University, recently said, quote, let's not pretend this is just about Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic. A lot of the US banking system is potentially insolvent. Well, a year 11 business studies student could tell you that at this stage, at this stage, these people are in trouble. Meanwhile, the US dollar is losing its world reserve currency status. In 2003, the dollar accounted for about two thirds of total global reserves. In 2021, it accounted for 55% of global reserves. Last year, it accounted for only 47%. Of note, the 8% decline in US global reserves between 2021 and 2022 is equivalent to 10 times the average annual pace of erosion in the US dollar's market share, in the prior years, that is. The culprits, I've said this before, we need in Australia to take note. Brazil and Argentina are now saying they'll prepare a common currency for trade and investment. We don't need the US dollar. Iraq plans on settling oil transactions in Chinese yuan for the first time. China and France completed a gas transaction in Chinese yuan for the first time. China and Brazil will trade in Chinese yuan. Trade between India and Malaysia will now be settled in Indian rupees. I mean, how can you blame these countries for ditching the dollar? In 2020 alone, the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, printed $3.3 trillion, which equated to about one fifth of all US dollars in circulation. Printing money. Why would you want to use a currency that's just printed out of thin air? Now, this is serious stuff. And we can't expect answers from Joe Biden. No, old Joe can't remember how many grandchildren he has or where he was last fortnight, let alone how much debt his government has racked up or how much money the Fed has printed to keep the system afloat. All I can say is that Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin and the Muslim oil barons of the Middle East must think we are bloody stupid. That's all from me for tonight. Lesson there for us, isn't it? Thank you for being with us. We're here to inform and to entertain. I hope we've done that. But don't forget, you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones and there I will be solving the problems of the world. No charmers fakery in what you hear on this program. I'll be back tomorrow night at the same time. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Thank you for your company and good night.